Laura Everett is United Church of Christ minister in Boston. For the past eight years, she's become a cyclist. We discuss her book, Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. When we think about transit violence and really transit justice, we're asking both about the structures that support just and sustainable transit for everyone. And we're asking about personal practices and behaviors. I also speak with Professor Tanya Erzin about her book, God in Captivity, the rise of faith-based prison ministries in the age of mass incarceration. And more and more states are outsourcing drug addiction, therapy, mental health counseling, trauma counseling, education to religious groups who can do it at, at a lower cost. It's time now for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schott. A bike means that joy is a regular part of my day. I don't think too many people can say that about their commute by car, but I know I am a much happier person because I spend time on my bicycle. Laura Everett is a United Church of Christ minister in Boston who for the last eight years has made the bicycle her main vehicle of transportation in all four seasons. She has found that riding her bike has connected her with her city, expanded her community, activated her on issues of transit justice, and increased her spiritual growth. She's happier because she rides her bike. As May is National Bike Month, it's timely to talk with Laura about her book, Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. Before we discuss the spirituality of cycling, we're going to talk about the proselytizing of prisoners. The United States, with 5% of the world's population, incarcerates 25% of the world's prisoners. Mass incarceration in the United States is well known. Today's guest points out something not quite as well known. Overcrowded and underfunded prisons now outsource educational and mental health services to religious groups. These religious organizations are overwhelmingly run by non-denominational Protestant Christians who see prisoners as captive audiences for their message. Is there a problem here? Tanya Erzin is the author of God in Captivity, The Rise of Faith-Based Prison Ministries in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Professor Erzin is an Associate Professor of Religion at the University of Puget Sound and the Executive Director of the Freedom Education Project Puget Sound, an organization that provides college classes to women in Washington prisons and seeks to educate the public about educational access and incarceration. From Seattle, welcome, Professor Erzin, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. You've had a lot of experience uh, working in prisons, uh, for instance, as uh, executive director of the Freedom Education Project Puget Sound, which is a nonprofit that provides college education for incarcerated women. Can you talk about uh, the work of that organization as well as the research you did in putting this book together? Yes, absolutely. So, it's it, the two things are related, although you know they're they're separate uh, endeavors on my part. The the college program we started in 2011, uh, we were invited by a group of women in the prison who had created their own community based organization, and they invited a group of professors in, and they said, "We have heard that some men in Washington have access to college classes. We would like the same thing." And so we we built the program with them. We started with uh, people coming in like myself, just teaching classes. We did not have credit. So gradually over time, we 
we were able to get an accreditation partner. Women now work towards an associate's degree. We have over 150 women going to college. Last year, we had our first graduates, four graduates. This year, we'll have 19. And next year, we could have over 35. And what's really great about the program is we bring in professors from all over the state to teach classes. They're all classroom-based. So students get a real feeling of what it is to have a, a, a professor from the outside who teaches on an outside campus, who holds them to the same standards as they would other students on the outside, to know what it's like to be a part of a program in a university where things like collaboration and critical thinking, asking questions are valued. And those aren't always valued in the, in the prison context. And then to really see the effect that it has on women, not just by getting degrees, but women having a feeling that their self-esteem has changed, that they're feeling more empowered, and then also that their children see them as accomplishing something even in, in a prison. So we have a student right now who could get out in a year early. She could have an electronic monitoring bracelet on uh, in order, and she has eight children. And her children are actually saying to her, do not leave until you finish your degree. We're really proud of you that you're doing something for the first time. We don't actually want you to leave the prison. We want you to finish college. Wow. Uh, and two of, her, two of her children are going to college now as well. And so seeing that effect, because women are in prison are often the primary caretakers for their children, unlike a lot of men in prison, you really see that effect. And we have another student whose son is in college now, and he comes and visits her. And in the visiting room, they talk about writing their papers. What did you get in English? Did you read this book? That's really profound to me because what we want, so we want to transform you know, women and give them financial stability and help them to get good jobs, to continue their education upon release. But when you can have an impact also on their families and communities, that's that's really important. So I think uh, we're excited about the program and we, we hope it keeps expanding. Uh, so you went and toured uh, some different prisons, uh, including in Washington, but uh, all around the country? Yes, I did. I had a sort of dual role. I was writing a book about the role of religious groups, faith-based groups in prisons, but I was also going as an educator to see, well, what's happening in these prisons in terms of in terms of education. And that's where it sort of comes together in my book, where I look at programs that are uh, the only opportunity to get a college degree in many prisons, particularly in the South, is through a Baptist seminary. And their, your degree is actually in Christian ministry. I want to go there in a little bit. But first of all, I want to talk about the history uh, that you provide throughout your book of prisons in the United States and, and sure. how the philosophy has changed over time and, and how religion really has played into that. Uh, can you give a history in a nutshell, perhaps begin with the penitentiary, how Quakers and Methodists sure. and Calvinists uh, shaped prison thought and practice? You know, when, when you think about the early American colonies, people who had come from the from England, their forms of justice were people lived in very small communities. So if someone committed a crime, the ultimate punishment for them was they were banished from the community, which, or they were publicly shamed. You think of the, the stockade. Uh, people were also hanged. Um, as you said, Methodists and Quakers created the first jails and prisons, both in Pennsylvania and in upstate New York, as a way to create a more humane alternative to what they saw as, as forms of colonial justice. And the first prisons, the idea, as you said, the penitentiary, was that people would go into a space and learn to be penitent, uh, to get in touch with, in the case of the Quakers, their divine inner light, the inner light of God, and thus be transformed and come out of prison differently. And a lot of people don't know this, but when we have, we have so much, uh, there's so much controversy around solitary confinement, but it was actually the Quakers who invented solitary confinement because in these first penitentiaries, people were put in these cells by themselves. Most of the time they had to work by themselves. Occasionally a minister would come and talk to them. But the idea was that solitude would somehow create this transformation. And then over time, we started to call prisons, not penitentiaries, we called them reformatories. So there was this emphasis on reform, but through a much more professionalized mode. And then reform 
had ebbs and flows, but really uh, we in the 1970s, when you had the explosion of the prison population, a lot of states began to take away uh, many rehabilitative programs. Uh, so as prisons fill up and new ones are built, funds uh, for providing mental health care, education and other services have been reduced. And, and as I read your book, kind of outsourced uh, to religious groups. Uh, talk about that. What do these religious groups do? Is this a, a good thing, bad thing? Right. I don't think it's either good or bad, and I, I hope to show the, the complexity of that in the book. But as you note, we have this dramatic rise in the prison population in our country at the same time that states are, because of budget constraints, asked to take away services that would have been provided. One of the biggest uh, examples of this is Pell Grants, which in prisons throughout the country, prisoners had access to Pell, which is low uh, financial aid for low-income students. Many people went to college. And after, in 94, when Clinton passed the, the Violent Crime Control Act, they took away Pell for prisoners and about 350 programs closed around the country. And that was really shown to be one of the most effective rehabilitative programs. So in the 1970s, you have, uh, because of really the work of certain people, like Chuck Colson, he was a Nixon aide. He went to prison for uh, Watergate-related crimes, became born again, started one of the major prison ministries, evangelical prison ministries, prison fellowship, starting to move into prisons and say, we can do the work of the state, we can do it more cheaply, and then they argue that we do it more, they do it more effectively. And they say that because, unlike secular programs, they argue that religious programs can transform a person's heart, transform them from the inside out, so they are essentially reborn as a new person, unlikely to return to prison. And more and more states, as you said, are outsourcing things like drug addiction, therapy, mental health counseling, trauma counseling, education to religious groups who can do it at, at a lower cost. And so for some, these religious programs uh, have been helpful. So let's start there. How has this work been positive for some of the inmates? So a lot of people in prison, for instance, in Angola, uh, Angola prison in Louisiana is the size of Manhattan. I think that's really important to think about. The size of Manhattan, out of uh, 6,000 people, 4,800 are serving life without the possibility of parole. So they're going to spend their whole lives in this place. Over time, you lose contact with your family, with your friends. And it's really uh, religious volunteers who are so predominant in prisons who provide that lifeline, that connection to the outside. Uh, whether and, and and then so you have connection to the outside. Being part of a religious group gives you a sense of community on the inside. It also for those in those prisons where people are likely to get out, often religious groups can provide things like community, a church community. When you're released, they can provide money for housing. They can help people with reentry, with job searching, because they are they're a community. They're connected. Uh, they have a network. The the other thing is that in many, as I noted, many of the prisons, uh, it's religious Baptist seminaries who are who are offering the only education programs. And so, you know, people take it, take advantage of them because they want an education. You know, people who have highly stigmatized crimes, especially sex offenses, they're often uh, it's, it's in religious in Christian or faith based groups where they feel they can they're actually accepted and that they can be, you know, not ostracized. You, they give, it gives them a sense that they can be forgiven, that no matter what they've done, there is a possibility of, of change, of becoming a new person. So that's the, the sort of positive aspects. All right. But to go to college, it's, it's a degree from the Baptist seminary, and it's restricted right. at the end to those who accept the religion. You just, you can't, how does that work? Right. They, they are operating in state prisons, so they, they have to accept other people aside from Christians. I interviewed, uh, there's a very small percentage of men who identify as Muslims, a few people who don't have a religious affiliation. But in general, the idea is to train people as missionaries. And that form of Christianity is a proselytizing kind of faith. There is an element of coercion. If you if you as a secular person wanted to be in that program, you are constantly going to be around people 
whose main impetus of their particular religious belief is to is to convert you, uh, and and that you have to take classes with a very particular kind of worldview, a conservative worldview, somewhat limited worldview. So that's a, it's a choice. You can go to that program, but it's the it's the only choice for education. Then then again, it's it's somewhat coercive. It's somewhat limiting. Yeah, it's it's either take this or or don't do it. Or gosh, or you well, get nothing. And the conditions in the prison are, are uh, incredibly tedious to say the least. I mean, you had uh, a story of women mowing the grass blade by blade. What right. would you call well, that? This is in the Louisiana women's prison where they have a Baptist seminary as well. And I, I I was so struck by this walking around. I would see groups of women sitting around. And they were plucking at the grass, and it's very hot. It was already May, and it was really hot in Louisiana, and there wasn't even that much grass to begin with, plucking at it with their fingers. And I thought it was just uh, something people were doing as they talked idly, but it's actually called goose picking, and it's a job. There's so many people in prison and so little to do that they're actually sent out to pick the grass with their hands. And so you have that, or you could get a college degree in a Baptist seminary, you know, I think that most people would choose the latter. Uh, and, and the one thing that I think is important about this, too, in context of women, you know, we talked about the racial, so how racially disproportionate the prison population is. But women are actually the fastest growing part of the prison population. And so as women's prisons become more and more overcrowded, what are they going to do with with all these people? Are you, are you going to pick grass or is there some other program for you? And if religion is the only program... Uh, what are you going to choose? Tanya Erzin, God in Captivity, the Rise of Faith-Based Prison Ministries in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Let's go back to Chuck Colson for a second. He said that uh, uh, religious groups can do it better than the state. Um, is there any uh, measurement on any of this, any metrics on how this uh, has helped to make people better? There have been studies done of faith-based programs, but I talk about them in my book. Uh, several law professors actually very methodically went through them and looked at how they sampled the, the population. And there was a lot of bias in terms of sampling. So the really easy answer to your question is no, there's been nothing that shows they are more effective. But the the, the bigger issue is religious, it's it's hard to measure empirically or in a, in a qualitative way, this the contention of people like Chuck Colson that we can transform someone's heart. So how do you, how do you measure that? How do you quali- quantify that? Um, I think people talk about being transformed by participating in religious groups. Is it more effective or transformative than a secular college program, than uh, another kind of trauma-informed program? I don't think so, uh, but it's certainly a, a very compelling argument to to religious people who who want to see more religious groups in prisons. And also, if it's one of the only programs available, again, uh, it's going to be effective because there's nothing else. Let's talk about the scale of this. I mean, there are uh, hundreds, right, of prisons who uh, right. only have this uh, religious type of uh, program. There, it, it really varies state to state, but almost every prison in the United States has uh, has a chapel that's run by a chaplain, and that chaplain has incredible uh, discretion in terms of who comes in to volunteer in a prison. So even in, say, the Washington Women's Prison, this has changed in the past year or so. But if you looked about the volunteer groups coming in, about 85% of them were faith-based groups, and the majority of them are Protestant, non-denominational Christian. So you have anything from that to places like Florida, where they under when Jeb Bush was governor, took their state prisons and transformed them and called them faith-based character institutions. The very idea being that rehabilitation would happen through participation in a faith-based or character-building program. Faith-based, they have to use that term again to avoid uh, accusations that they're they're sort of violating the First Amendment. But again, the majority, this is Central Florida very isolated parts of Florida tend to be non-denominational Christian. And so if you ask, for instance, um, a large Baptist seminary or a prison administration or someone like Chuck Colson, hey, we're going to start a faith-based prison, but it's going to be, we're going to have an entire dorm that's that's a Muslim dorm 
or a Muslim wing of the prison, I don't think you would have the same kind of support that you do for, for Christian programs. And so the story I always tell is when I went to a prison in Florida, they had a new chapel and it was beautiful. And uh, the pews were new, the gleaming wood, they had a sound system, they had instruments. I think they had the ability to watch movies in there. And it was central Florida. It's the only air conditioned place in the entire prison. And the Muslim group was meeting in the equivalent of a broom closet, you know, the Muslim study group. And so where are you going to go in that prison? You're going to go to the chapel because it's nice and it's, and it's air conditioned. Uh, and there are all these sort of subtle and not so subtle ways that you can marginalize certain religious groups. If Governor Jeb Bush and all of the others are really like these religious groups, part of that is because they don't criticize the prison itself or why people are going to prison in the first place, and they seem to rather, is it right, justify kind of the punitive aspect of prison. Right. And and that is my big criticism of the groups. The I say this in the book, but when I first started writing, I met several men who'd been in prison for a very long time, and they were really helpful in thinking through some of these issues. And one of them said to me, Tanya, ask the faith-based groups are you giving people the help they need or the help that you think they need? Um, are you addressing the sort of fundamental reasons of why people are in the prison? Um, or are you there merely to proselytize to a captive population? Uh, my criticism is that so many of these groups come in, they run these services, but they're not asking, for instance, why are so many people serving life without the possibility of parole? Why are so many women going to prison uh, in the first place? Why don't we have a better parole system? Why is solitary confinement still being used? And I think that faith-based groups, they're, they're in the prison. They have connections to people in prison. They know what those spaces are like. How powerful it would be if the Baptists who are running the college programs were to actually come out and say, uh, we need to reform sentencing laws in Louisiana and Texas. There are too many. There, there are more prisons in these states alone than there are in entire countries in the rest of the world. Why is this happening? Working within the system, I am not discounting the fact that individuals can be changed by religion, but I think the problem mass incarceration is a structural problem. It's a broad problem. We need to see that. It's not about saving people's souls. It's about trying to change a system that is so, I mean, we are such an exception as a country in a very negative way compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, and to ask a theological question or a sociological question is, what's the purpose of prison in the first place? Right. I just taught a class called Crime and Punishment, and I start the class asking students that, and I often ask audiences that question. You hear so many different answers. Uh, is is it merely to warehouse people? That's certainly what's what it's been like since the 1970s. Is it to rehabilitate people? If so, how does that how does that work? Uh, does reform happen through religion? Um, is there art? Can we envision alternatives to the prison? and to the way we punish. We have to, as a country, really address not just nonviolent crime, but also sort of what do we do about people who commit violent crimes? Is 20 years a good sentence for people? Um, is 10 years enough? You know, why do we have such long sentences? What would it mean to release people earlier? I just was talking to a family member of a woman who was incarcerated at age 14, and she's served 20 years. She's 34. She's about to graduate from college. She is a different person. Is 20 years enough time for what she did? Can we let her go out and, and try and live her life and be an engaged citizen that contributes to our community? Is there a reason to keep holding her in there? And I think these questions about punishment and why we punish the way we do, it, I think that religious groups of such important kind of resources to, to ask those questions and to start those conversations, and we really need to have that conversation as a country. Tanya Erzin, my guest, she's the author of God in Captivity, The Rise of Faith-Based Prison Ministries in the Age of Mass Incarceration. I was talking to a friend about this upcoming interview and telling him, yeah, it's, these religious groups have really kind of taken over these prisons and, and whatnot. And, and he says, well, you know, that should be a challenge to more mainline and secular groups. We, we've left, dropped the ball. Yeah. I spoke recently in New York at Columbia Law School about this issue, and they were really interested in sending law students down to a lot of these prisons to look at, is this violating people's religious freedom? And I said, 
well, that's great, and I'm glad you're engaged, but if you were to somehow get rid of the Baptist seminaries that are offering AA and BA degrees in these prisons, is Columbia University going to offer credit towards a degree in that in those prisons? You know, are they going to replace that? So I think you're right. Other groups need to sort of step up and say, how can we how can we address this problem as well? And how can we either go inside or provide ways or pathways for people coming out so that they can be successful and not just by a measurement. So much of what's measured in terms of success around uh, both the religious programs or on education, people say, well, this, dec- this decreases recidivism. So people are less likely to go back to prison. And I always say, well, somebody could come out of prison and be living under a bridge and be in an abusive relationship, maybe have a terrible job, right? Um, be estranged from their children. And we can say they're a success because they haven't gone back to prison. And I, it's a broader issue of how do we help cr- people create meaningful and good lives, whether that's good relationships, uh, a good a career, um, continuing education, their own mental health and well-being. And, and that's a tough thing. I'm not saying it's easy, but we, uh, I think we have to change our, our standards for, for what we want for people and what, how we want them to you know, return to, to our communities. And that kind of goes back to the beginning uh, conversation we had uh, about uh, the program that you work with, the uh, Freedom Education Project Puget Sound. Are there other programs like that one? And, and how hard yeah. is it to get something like that started? Yes, they're, they're all over the country. We just started last year a national organization called the Alliance for Higher Education in Prison, and it's supposed to be a large network that provides resources for people that want to start these programs and for universities that, that want to be involved. I'm hopeful, and I'm hopeful about the fact that so many people are leaving prison and becoming um, lawyers and policymakers and teachers and professors and running organizations. And it's formerly incarcerated people who are sort of taking up the leadership around these issues. And the more visible they are, the more um, they can be the ones talking about these issues. I think that's really powerful way to sort of speak about mass incarceration and how to change it. I'm speaking with Tanya Erzin. God in Captivity is her book, The Rise of Faith-Based Prison Ministries in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Uh, Professor Erzin, thank you so much for your work and this book and for being with me today. Thank you. We make the transition from prison justice to transit justice. When I return, I speak with Laura Everett. Laura Everett is a United Church of Christ minister in Boston. She describes herself as an unabashed urbanist and a bicycle evangelist. She's the executive director of the Massachusetts Council of Churches and the author of Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock. Stay with us. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Laura Everett has been riding her bicycle for eight years, winter, spring, summer, and fall. She started from necessity and discovered a deepened sense of spiritual connection with her city and the larger cycling community. Perhaps most importantly, she has discovered the joy of commuting by bike. Via Skype from Boston, welcome, Laura, to Progressive Spirit. Hi, John. Thank you. Let's get some basics. You're a clergy person, United Church of Christ. You live in Boston, a bicyclist, because your car broke down. Tell that story, if you would, <laughs> and, and how long you've been doing this and how often you ride and whatnot. Sure. Well, I've been a daily bike commuter for about eight years now, and um, I didn't start out this way. I ended up on a bicycle because my car died on the side of the road on a late stormy night. And I was pretty fresh out of seminary. I was working for a church nonprofit and um, I simply didn't have the money to 
replace my car. Now, whether it was divine providence or um, just accident, I happened to be in a Bible study at the time with a bunch of other women who were asking serious questions about how to be more faithful with our money, how to follow um, Jesus's uh, teachings more closely in our personal finances. And, you know, I, I slunk back to that Bible study the next week after my car died and, and said I need to buy a new car. And they said, you don't have the money to buy a new car. Um, and they said, we'll help you. And that started me on a path of uh, giving up my car and then becoming a daily bike commuter in Boston. I mean, that isn't easy, right? I mean, there's a big learning curve to becoming a cyclist on, on, and, and you did it full scale right away. Well, uh, yes. I mean, I think it can be a big learning curve, but I had some pretty wonderful people teach me that I didn't have to become entirely clad in spandex all at once, that I, <laughs> I could take some small steps and move at my own comfort. So that's also what I counsel people who are thinking about, um, using bicycles to do more small trips and then maybe move to a place where a bicycle is your primary form of transit. For me, those other women in my Bible study really started by saying, let's, um, let's get you a bicycle that's practical. Let's figure out what do you need to make this work? Maybe it's a bigger backpack. Maybe it's a rack on the back of your bike. And then they taught me how to ride in the city. I don't know about you, John, but I grew up in the suburbs of northern New Jersey, and bicycles were really toys for kids or recreation for adults. Sometimes it was exercise, but mostly it was uh, entertainment. Bicycles were entertainment. And so I really didn't have a sense of how to use a bicycle as a vehicle. You learn pretty quickly that you don't want to be carrying um a 24 pack of toilet paper on the back or, <laughs> or um, a, a case of beer, it's just too heavy. And so you have to really learn how to pace yourself in a way that's quite different than uh, using a car. But right away, you commuted to your workplace. Is that right? Yeah, I did. So uh, the office I was in was about six and a half miles from my home. And what these women really helped me see was that I could start off slowly. I could bike in one way and then leave my bike overnight, chain it outside or find somewhere inside to leave it and then take the train home. I could build up some skill and comfort. I could ride maybe two days a week for the first couple of months and then set a goal of riding three days a week and then increase slowly by slowly. Um, till it was really just the most practical way for me to get around. And at this point, about eight years later, I have this sense that, oh my gosh, why would I take a car? I'm going to have to pay for gas. I'm going to have to find parking. A bicycle has become a really self-evident way um, for me to get around the city in ways that are joyful and uh, really practical. And you ride year-round, and I've heard that Boston gets a little snow now and then. <laughs> yeah, we have some pretty good bragging rights on our snow. And, so how do you manage you know, that? Well, uh, more wool base layers. Um, <laughs> you know, there's this great uh, saying that uh, Norwegians have that there's not bad weather, there are just bad mittens. Ah. So, you know, you, you just kind of, Think ahead a little about how many layers you need. I mean, look, if I, I won't ride if it's really, really icy um, or if it drops below 15 degrees and I have to be out for more than half an hour. That's, that's generally not workable for me. But um, I think you figure out what can you manage and what are the kind of adaptations you need to do to make that work. In the end, cycling as my primary form of transit is really a practical, it started as a practical decision um, and then slowly but surely became part of a spiritual discipline too.
Well, that's what I want to talk about now. Laura Everett is my guest on Progressive Spirit. She's the author of Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. In writing your book, you said you surprised yourself in that cycling became a spiritual practice. Bicycling uh, connected you uh, with your city and with the people that you would meet daily. In fact, there's a line that you wrote, uh, loving your neighbor is easier if you can see them. So how has bicycling made you more intimate with Boston? Yeah. Well, before my bicycle was my primary form of transit, I was either in a car or on the subway. I used to go underneath neighborhoods, and now I go through them. And that regularity means that I see the same shopkeepers and the same students um, and the same guys who are living outside through all four seasons on my bicycle because I actually see my neighbors as I pass through my neighborhood. It just seems that the bicycle is the right pacing for a city. Bicycles are natural for cities. I think that's true. Bicycles are um, a cheap form of transit in expensive cities. It's worth remembering that across the U.S., most people who ride bicycles are actually poor. We have this image of cyclists as being uh, primarily white and male and uh, clad in neon spandex and riding $1,000 carbon fiber bikes. But really, bicycles are affordable transit in expensive areas. And so we see more and more people using bicycles, maybe not out of choice, but also out of necessity. You've structured your book uh, so creatively. Uh, each chapter describes a portion of the bike. Uh, for example, chapter one is the frame. And then you connect that with the, a rule of life uh, in the monastery. I want to talk about Brother Lawrence in a second. But talk about how you mm -hmm. structured this book. Right. Well, my thinking about the structure of the book was that I was aiming for a couple of different audiences. I was aiming for people who maybe were bicycle curious, but uh, not yet converted. So I knew I needed to talk about the parts of the bicycle in a way that was broadly accessible. So each chapter is about a different part of the bicycle, the frame, the wheels, the saddle, tires and tubes, lights, fork, handlebars, gears, chain, helmet, brakes, and ultimately the rider. But I also wanted to think intentionally about what I'm calling urban spiritual disciplines. What are the ways that cities actually shape us as spiritual people? And so each part of the bicycle pairs with what I think is an urban spiritual discipline as well. You write about uh, Brother Lawrence, a Carmelite monk, uh, throughout your book. So, so how is riding a bike like being <laughs> a monk? Well, I turned to Brother Lawrence because I was trying to figure out how to make sense of what had become for me a daily spiritual discipline. I think what we do daily shapes us, whatever we do daily, um, whether it's making coffee or reading a newspaper or praying or how we eat. And I was noticing that my daily bicycle commute was starting to shape my spiritual life. But there's not much in uh, spiritual writing to help me make sense of this. And so I turned to one of the classics of Christian spiritual writing, Brother Lawrence, who um, his writings were collected into a classic known as the practice of the presence of God. And Brother Lawrence seemed like a really good conversation partner for me because while he lived in a monastery, he never absented himself from the chaos of daily life. Brother Lawrence is one of those folks who um, seemed to spend the majority of his life peeling potatoes in the monastery kitchen. And so he was surrounded by uh, other brothers who were grating on his nerves and the clank of pots and pans. He wasn't... Um, somehow transcending above the chaos and the noise of his community, but really trying to find what was holy within the chaos. And I thought maybe that could be a good conversation partner for thinking about how we make sense of living tight with people who are really unlike us, which I think is one of the primary experiences of living in a city. Yeah, I don't know if it was Brother Lawrence, but I remember a quote from a monk in general uh, who was asked, what's the hardest thing about being a monk? And he said, well, other monks. 
<laughs> right. Right. I mean, sometimes I feel like the hardest thing about being a cyclist is dealing with other people. It's one of the reasons why I ask in the book, you know, what is a spiritually mature response to other people's anger um, or neglect? I don't, I don't always know if turning the other cheek is the right response if a negligent driver who's playing Pokemon Go while trying to drive their car is drifting into the lane and, and might do real damage to me and other vulnerable transit users. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, vulnerability of cycling. My guest, uh, Laura Everett, uh, Holy Spokes is her book, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. Uh, the vulnerability of cycling and the relationship between cyclists and motorists. Mm. Well, I think we're broken people in a broken system. And for whatever reason, somehow we experience the road as competitive. Now, maybe that's uh, just an experience on the East Coast and you West Coasters are more mindful and transcendent, but- I don't but think here so. In, no? <laughs> um, I think we're but, pretty competitive here too. Okay. Well, here in Boston, it can be really aggressive as if um, getting to the light first is somehow a victory. Um, hmm. But I tend to take the strategy that I'd rather be alive than right. Um, Transit violence is real. Advocates that I'm connected to are pushing for a vision across the nation called Vision Zero, a vision where we get to the place where there are zero traffic fatalities. Because it doesn't have to be like this, but we've somehow um, lost the humanity of one another on the road. You know, I don't think I've heard that phrase before, transit violence. Well, I mean, it isn't just about accidents. Transit violence is a different phrase altogether. That's right. And look, there's both personal behavior and structural injustice. By riding a bicycle in Boston through the winter, through a bunch of different neighborhoods, you see what neighborhoods have good transit infrastructure and which ones are lagging behind. And often that correlates really closely to um, communities of color, poor neighborhoods, um, not getting the kind of resources and infrastructure that wealthier neighborhoods, downtown neighborhoods, central neighborhoods get. And so when we think about transit violence and really transit justice, we're asking both about the structures that support just and sustainable transit for everyone. And we're asking about personal practices and behaviors. So, and that's part of what became so visible to me as a cyclist. I'm speaking with Laura Everett uh, on Progressive Spirit, the author of Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. And and your bike uh, really does have a clergy sign. On, on the back, right? And you've outed yourself to Boston that you are a preacher on wheels. How did that happen? And what, what's that mean for you? Oh, well, so I do. I have a clergy license plate zip tied to my bike rack. And I, I sort of started doing it as a joke, but then realized it was a way to be visible as a pastor in my city. You know, Um, people recognize me and recognize my bicycle. And it means that I have conversations with people on the road who know me as someone who travels with them, who recognizes me from uh, community events. And it means that I get to start a conversation with people about what's most meaningful for them. And sometimes that just happens when we're waiting for a stoplight to change. That makes you, in some degree, a kind of a chaplain to the cycling community. For example, even in the back of your book, a couple of liturgies about blessing the bikes and uh, and a ghost bike service. Cyclists who have lost their lives in accidents. Can you talk a little bit more about this, the ghost bikes? Sure. And, John, one of the shifts in language that um, transit justice activists have really uh, worked towards is um, – using language around crash rather than accident, because we actually don't know if it was an accident when someone was killed. What we do know is that there was a crash. So 
we talk about crash not accidents and unfortunately a number of crashes have resulted in traffic fatalities um, and in cyclists being killed. Now, ghost bikes are a, a practice of the cycling community that goes back um, almost two decades now. In the early 2000s, a cyclist in St. Louis, Patrick, felt that people were being hurt and killed in his city while riding their bicycles, and they weren't getting the recognition that he thought they deserved. The police department wasn't prosecuting those who had killed them in a way he thought was just. And Patrick took that frustration and gathered up a bunch of old bicycles, scoured police reports for the places of crashes, and then under cover of night, installed a bunch of white painted ghost bikes in the locations of crashes. Now, when Patrick did that in the early 2000s, those ghost bikes were taken down pretty quickly. But the idea spread to other cycling communities around the country who also felt like their crashes were just sort of treated as um, the cost of doing business on the road. And cyclists had an experience of feeling like they wanted to make those casualties visible. Now, in Boston... Um, as I uh, became a more regular uh, cyclist and got to know more people in the cycling community, we had a number of fatalities and dedications of ghost bikes. And we ended up recognizing that we wanted to gather as a community to grieve, to mourn, to bless those ghost bikes. And um, I've included in the book, Holy Spokes, uh, a liturgy in the back of the book a sample liturgy of a ghost bike ceremony. Now, I've been a pastor for a long time, but no prayer book that I've ever encountered has a liturgy on how to do a ghost bike. So we had to make it up. And it's very inclusive. I mean, it's it's for people who may have a religious tradition or not or something different from yours. When we built out the ghost bike ceremony, we knew that we needed something that was reverent and sacred in tone, but broadly accessible to people of every religious tradition and no religious tradition. And frankly, as a pastor, that's kind of hard to figure out. What do you, what do you sing? How do you pray? How do you name the grief, um, the mourning, the longing, the hopes in a community, um, in a way that everybody can access? And, um, I'd say that really stretched me to be a better pastor, not just to people that sort of speak my language from a Christian tradition, but speak more broadly in ways that people from every religious tradition and no religious tradition can also experience. I'm glad you talked, you mentioned um, that it's crash, not accident, and talked about uh, transit justice and transit violence. Uh, because there's a feeling among cyclists that you mentioned in your book of really feeling expendable, um, of, of not counting uh, within the city. Um, in fact, you're a part of um, uh, working for safety and solidarity among uh, cyclists as an organizer and activist. What are kinds of the issues that you raise there and uh, participate in uh, with, with the city of Boston as cyclists and transit in general? Mm, thank you. Well, and the conversation about visibility and being seen is not just about getting more bike lights on your bicycle. It's about the integrity of our lives, our bodies, um, our very life. And so I spent a lot of time on this in the fifth chapter that's about lights. Now, technically, lights aren't part of a bicycle. They're an after-purchase add-on. But cyclists have a real sense that our safety, in part, depends on being seen. Cyclists have a turn of phrase that I find really helpful. We talk about taking the lane. And this is the idea and the legal principle that in a situation where there's not viable space on the side of the road, cyclists are allowed to move into the center of the lane. Because there are times really when my safety is dependent upon my visibility. 
Now, as a spiritual issue, I think women, people of color, queer folk, we've learned in some ways by the broader culture to keep ourselves small, to make ourselves less visible so that other people feel comfortable. And that myth can be really damaging to one's own sense of esteem and dignity. And so part of what being on a bicycle has shifted for me is a growing sense that I am worthy to be seen. And it's not only appropriate, it's necessary for me to take up enough space in the road and um, off the road, too. Take the lane. Laura Everett, my guest. Uh, Holy Spokes, the search for urban spirituality on two wheels. Urban spirituality via cycling. Can can you put in a nutshell, uh, a, a, a summation, what spirituality ha- means to you now uh, that you are a cyclist? Oh, what a great question, John. Um, I think joy is also a spiritual discipline. I feel a sense of agency in my own body because of my time on a bicycle. I know I can get myself places. Um, I know that I am capable of moving myself around. I have a different relationship with my thighs because of this. Um, I have a sense (laughs) that I am capable. Riding a bike means that joy is a regular part of my day. I don't think too many people can say that about their commute by car, but I know I am a much happier person because I spend time on my bicycle. This is really a marvelous book and a marvelous story and a wonderful conversation. Uh, Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. Uh, Laura Everett, uh, my guest on Progressive Spirit, just on a number of levels, uh, learning about bicycles, the history of bicycling, uh, the issues uh, regarding that would be a book in itself, but you connect it with... um, personal growth, spirituality, social justice. I mean, it's a complete package. Uh, thank you for the <laughs> thank you for the book and and for what you've done and your witness here. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks, John. I I hope this inspires you and other people to spend some more time on your bicycle and uh, notice the world around you more carefully. Progressive Spirit is heard every week on several radio stations across the country. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. If you enjoy the show, ask your local public radio station to check it out and add Progressive Spirit to its weekly lineup. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed through Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and the Pacifica Radio Network. You can also catch Progressive Spirit on podcast. Hear it on your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear and listen on iTunes or Stitcher or any app that has a place for a review, uh, would you leave one? More reviews help the show get a wider audience. And if you have ideas for guests or would like to comment on an episode, contact me through my website, progressivespirit.net. That's progressivespirit.net. You can comment on Facebook and retweet on Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Schuck. You're welcome.